0: Today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 26 verses 36 to 46. 26:36 to 46. Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane and he said to his disciples, "Sit here while I go over there and pray." And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to his disciples, and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. See, my betrayer is at hand. Let's pray together. Father, as we come before You, we come as Your redeemed people to worship, to sit at the feet as Mary sat at the feet of Christ, to listen, to hear Your Word. God, be glorified in the preaching and teaching of Your Word. And as we seek your glory, as we seek your face, we even beg that you would guard our hearts and minds. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, have your way in us, move us, craft us, sculpt us, help us to be the people. You would have us to be a holy people, pleasing in your sight, a gift for the the son, the groom, that we would be a bride cleansed. Father, be honored here this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the fifth and final temptation of Christ that we're going to look at Uh, throughout the year. We've gone through the previous four. And when I thought about where I would be preaching when I had the opportunity, I thought what a great example Jesus Christ would be to us. How He parried away temptation. What an example that would be for us to hear and to follow after. And it's not a bad thing to look to Christ as an example. He exhorted the disciples to look after Him when He washed their feet. He said, I just gave you an example. Go and do likewise. Paul exhorts the same thing to the Philippians. Let this mind be in you. And he points to Christ, the humility of Christ as he took on the flesh of man to be the sacrifice for mankind. So it's not a bad thing to look at Christ as an example. But my heart's deep desire for us in this study is not merely pragmatic. Ooh, how can we better overcome temptation? But in studying these things, That we might know Christ better. That we might love Him. That we might worship Him and give Him the glory that He is due as King of kings and Lord of lords. That we might come to a greater understanding and deeper intimacy. With the one who loved us and gave Himself for us. His every deed deserves praise. His every word should turn our head. His very being should fill us with wonder and delight. And in Him we find our satisfaction. As we understand who He is, what He has done and does, the redeemed cannot help but worship. It's when we hear and don't, we need to wonder where do we stand before Him. Earlier this year, we looked at the Lord fending off temptations, the temptations of Satan while he was fasting in the wilderness. Three times he was challenged. Three times he counterpunched with his feet firmly anchored on the word of God. He would not be derailed from the purposes of the Father. Last month, we looked at the Lord being rebuked by a friend, a well-intentioned friend who did not want the cross in Christ's future. Peter pledged himself to prevent such a terrible end. But our Lord recognized that even in this was the distraction of Satan. Not that Satan had possessed Peter because such a thing was not possible. Such a thing is not possible for the redeemed. But the circumstance and the idea were certainly a conspiracy of the evil one. Jesus would not be derailed from the purposes of the Father. Today, as we go into the garden the night before his execution, we're going to see Jesus struggling in the frailty of his humanity. To come to terms with what he was going to face. Now, some people might go, oh, wow, you know, Jesus struggling? He's God. Well, yes, and he was man. He was not Übermensch, he was not Superman. He needed sleep, he needed food, and unlike the Marvel comic book universe, real men can die and God, the son did die. So it should not surprise us that he would have to come to terms with what he was about to do. His own skin wanted to derail him from the purposes of the father. And in in a manner, we all face similar situations None of us is going to have to bear the weight of the sin of humanity on a cross. That's not a similarity. But we are going to face hard things. And hard situations in the limitations of our skin. Of our flesh. It may be wanting to run from a responsibility that we know might alienate somebody if I follow through with it. It may cause the loss of a job. I may not want to do that thing if it's going to cause me to lose a job. It may simply be wanting to avoid the pain and darkness and devastation of this world. I don't want to. Today we're going to try and grasp the apprehension and the trepidation Uh, That Jesus faced. I, I I don't want to call it anxiety. It wasn't a worry. It was a knowledge. It was a knowledge of what he was going to face. And it was daunting. But such courage from our God and Savior. Should strike a bonfire of praise for us. Toward the God that we serve and we love. The God who calls us his children. The God who calls us friends and brothers. It should also impel us. To be courageous in our own struggles that we are surely going to face. So let's set the stage here in Matthew chapter 26. We are 12 hours before the crucifixion. 12 hours, 9 p.m. ish. The triumphal entry where everything was celebratory was just a week before. Everything was great. Earlier that evening, he had celebrated a transformational Passover where the Passover became something else, much to their confusion at the time. After dinner, I mean, think of this in the minds of the disciples. Okay, Didn't get much of that, but we celebrated Passover because we're good Jewish boys. And after dinner, they walked down east down the hillside down into the bottom of the kidron valley across a pathway and up the ridgeline of the mount of olives a north south ridgeline just to the east of jerusalem where they had gone a lot before and they went to the garden of gethsemane throughout his ministry christ would withdraw to the mount of olives with his disciples so the disciples what are they thinking this is where we're going to stay for the night okay it's already late we're not going to go all the way to Bethany on the other side of the hill we're just going to stay here and sleep on the ground like they had done so often before from the garden of Gethsemane if you look to the west right in front of you is the temple I mean, you can see it you can see it from there so they are, are laying down getting nestled in for the night in the shadow of the temple. Jesus didn't come to sleep. Jesus came to pray. The first application. Or bef- rather before we get to the application. I want us to consider the first point, And that is the magnitude of the burden. That Jesus Christ was facing. The clues are all in here in the text. He told the disciples I'm going over there to pray. And not only did he tell them he was going, he took three of them with him, his three dearest friends. I want you near me now. He tells them plainly, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Okay. You know, they're probably scratching their heads going, what? Okay. I mean, there was an agony later on. He falls to his face in prayer. Luke's gospel tells us that in the middle of these, in the middle of these prayers, these three prayers that he prays to his father, he sweats drops of blood. This is is something I'm going to assume nobody in here has ever endured. It is such an emotional consternation. It is such an emotional ringing, like a wash rag. So stressed are you in your being that your capillaries start to rupture and you start to sweat blood. God the Son What is driving this peculiar behavior? I mean, this you don't see this from Jesus anywhere in the Gospels. Never do you see Him like this. He's a mess. So Peter and John, James, okay. And off Jesus goes to pray. What's driving this? A lot of people will suggest he knew the crucifixion was coming. And, you know, he was just really stressed about the crucifixion. I don't think that's it. And I think the clues are in the text. Now, certainly he knew the cross was there. And certainly nobody, I I don't like going to the dentist. Okay, we're just talking, ick. If you know you're going to the cross and you've seen people crucified throughout Israel because of the Romans... You go, man, this is not good. Not good. But I don't think the physical act of crucifixion was what burdened him. He reveals his fear in his prayers. Let this cup pass from me. If this cannot pass unless I drink it. So what is a cup? A cup is something from which we drink. Nothing crazy. But when I go to visit somebody, somebody is going to offer me a drink. And I will drink what they have provided. Kings would have cup bearers. What a cup bearer would do is he would taste it before the king did to make sure Vizini didn't put any poison into it. Okay, make sure it was still safe. Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the king. In the Bible, we see cups, uh, various cups. In, in the psalm, Psalm 23, for those who memorize that as a kid, it, it is, is a cup of blessing. My cup overflows. It means there's an abundance. Uh, psalm 116 speaks of the cup of salvation from which we would all love to drink. But most of the the occurrences in Scripture of the cup is the cup of God's wrath. Psalm 75, verse 8, reads, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and He pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. The wicked are going to drink of this cup. Isaiah chapter 57, or excuse me, 51. Verses 17 to 19. He says, wake yourself. Wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of His wrath who have drunk to the dregs, to the very bottom, to this, the grape rinds that remained after the wine was poured, Dr- drank it to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering. There is none to guide her among all the sons she has born. There is none to take her by the hand among all the sons she has brought up. Who will console you? Who will comfort you? Perhaps the most vivid description of the cup of God's wrath is in Revelation 14, which Elaine read. And I'm going to turn there. I'm going to loiter here for a little bit just to anchor on the severity of the cup of the wrath of God and what is the purpose behind it. In Revelation chapter 14, we see in verse 7, that this is the hour of judgment. Judgment. Where the judge is going to render his verdict here. Babylon, who stands in the dock, has previously caused all the other nations to drink of her immorality. And so God pours out his judgment, and his wrath upon Babylon by the cup. Verse 9 of chapter 14. Another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead and on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath. Poured full strength into the cup of his anger. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image. And whoever receives the mark of, his, of its name. Torment. I believe this is the cup that Jesus is about to drink on behalf of the redeemed to pay for the penalty of sin. What are the clues there? Well, one, the anguish that he didn't want to drink this This isn't a cup of blessing. Otherwise he'd go, yes, please bring it. But he even tells Peter a little bit later when the guards come, Peter, the sword wielder, Picks up his sword and swings and misses and lops off Malchus's ear. And Jesus says to Peter, Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? This cup of God's wrath. In Leviticus 16, we see. The example of the scapegoat. Jesus Christ knew that he was going to be the scapegoat. What happened with the scapegoat is the high priest would put his hands on the head of the goat and transfer the sins of Israel onto this goat who would then be sent to the wilderness. We think of Christ as Christ our Passover Well, that death would pass over us. Yes, at what cost? At the sacrifice of the Lamb. But why does that sacrifice merit to us at all? It merits to us because our sin has been imputed to Christ has been laid on Christ. Paul makes this very plain to us in 2 Corinthians 5.21, where he tells the Corinthian church, for our sake, he made him to be sin. Christ the sinless. He made him to be sin so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. To the Colossians, Paul says, he says, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us by its legal commands. How did he do that? This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. What was nailed to the cross? Jesus Christ was nailed to the cross. Our sin, our record of sin was on Him. Why did Jesus cry from the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God the Father forsaken God the Son? Jesus knew that on the cross... He would bear the wrath justly deserved for you and me. He knew His Father. He knew the holiness and righteousness of His Father to bear that wrath, to have perfect fellowship in the Trinity for eternity past and now Why have you forsaken me? The magnitude of what Christ faced. It's staggering. Despite his inner conflict, he persevered. Christ persevered. And in the encouragement of that example, so must we. We've already looked at the indicators of the torment. You know, oh, to have your friends with you when you are suffering. Oh, that you would be there. Put a hand on me while I cry. But three times he asked for the cup to be taken from him. He didn't want it. I don't want to do this. That's not sinful. I I don't want to do this. You know, it's like, I I don't want to have a root canal. Okay, that's that's normal. Ick. Um, I don't want to be punished. That's normal. That's okay, that's normal. Three times. Sweat drops of blood. How did he overcome this? How did Jesus Christ get up? When he gets up, he doesn't twitch. From here on out, he won't twitch again. Steadfast. What happened? His greatest desire was his Father's will. Now, his own desires were very real. Those, those were very real. I don't want to be crucified. I don't want your sin. I don't want, I don't want to be shackled with their sin. I don't want to be alienated from you. I don't want to bear your wrath. But throughout his life, throughout his ministry, he said what he lived. That his purpose was to do the will of the Father. John six thirty eight. I have come down from heaven... Not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Over and over again. I mean, that's how he combated Satan in the desert. desert. Christ glorified the Father in his life, and he would glorify the Father in his death. That the Father would be both just and the justifier. Romans chapter 3. Okay, yeah, how, do I, how do I apply that to my life? Well, let, let's understand that Jesus was different than we are. Okay, how was he different? He didn't have a sin nature. Okay, his mind wasn't inclined to things of unrighteousness as ours tend toward because of the natural inclination towards sin. And yes, while absolutely man, he is absolutely God. But at the same time, he was absolutely man. And here we see an an example of his skin battling against him. His humanity going, "I, I don't want to do this. So Jesus Christ is in the garden really facing a very real choice. Three times he goes, take it from me. If there's any other way. Three times. But three times he responds with the same thing. Not my will, but yours be done. Your will be done done We see that Jesus Christ trusted and submitted to the Father. How can how could Christ trust the Father? He knew the Father. And don't don't assume this away. Don't just go, well, he was Jesus. He knew his Father and loved his Father. Is the door open for you to love God and to know God? Absolutely. Can you know Him truly? Absolutely. So he could trust the Father because he knew the Father. But it goes It goes deeper. the father's desire was the son's highest desire. the son's desire was the father or the, the father's desire was the son's highest desire because of his love. what the father wanted, the son wanted because of love. what the father wanted overruled any lesser desires that he might have. Okay? Um, Tracy, my wife, typically would not pick to go see a Marvel movie. Not necessarily her thing. But if I wanted to go see a Marvel movie, she would go, oh yeah, sweet. Sweet. Now, is she going to sit in the comfy movie theater chairs that they have now and grouse the whole time? Oh, we're not seeing a mushy love story. No, she's going to delight in the movie. Why? Because she knows it delights me. And therefore, it delights her also. Likewise, the same thing should go both ways. Okay, if my wife wants to see a gushy love story, then I'll go, yeah, great, and mean it. You know, I mean it because her desires become my desires and I will let her desires trump my desires and that pleases me. The son longed to do the will of the father. It was his satisfaction. He knew that therein was his satisfaction. They weren't separate. What about us? Lord? Really? How far are you willing to go? How far does Christ desire you to go? What about in your struggle against temptation? Um, You have not yet resisted to the point of sweating blood. Well, that's hardly fair, but it's biblical. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. You have not yet resisted to the point of sweating blood. But that's, that's kind of the negative. You know, we all go, No, I haven't haven't done that. I capitulate. But the question comes down to, am I looking at the negative or am I looking at the positive? Sin is never going to provide for you a greater satisfaction than obedience. Never. It never will. It can't. Following God's good design, even when sin is not involved... Okay, you know what God has ordered. You know, you know the good things that God is exhorting and encouraging you to do. You know, is it acceptable to read your Bible? Yes. Is it acceptable to go for a run? Yes. Which is better? Well, if I've just spent the last 15 hours in scripture, maybe going for the run. But if I haven't picked up my Bible in a week, but I've run four times already. There's going to be a war in me between a good and better thing. Following God's good design, even when sin is not involved, will never give you a cheap copy. God's good design is always going to give you something exceedingly abundantly above all you could ask or imagine. Satan's going to tell you, dude, if you do this, you're going to get a Lamborghini. And he's going to give you a little matchbox. He will never give you the Lamborghini. That's how he's going to entice you. But God is simply going to call you to obedience. And how he is going to lavish his goodness upon those who love him is not... Paul tells the Corinthian church... Eyes haven't seen, ears haven't heard, and your little nugget hasn't even begun to imagine what God has in store for those who love Him. Do you believe it? For the joy set before Him, He endured the cross. So when He says, Thy will be done, it wasn't, uh, no. He was able to get up from there and walk steadfastly. Did he struggle? Absolutely. So why do we not have victory in our lives? I would contend we don't want it. Ouch. Because Romans 6 may explain to us that the power of sin has been brought to nothing through the crucifixion of Christ. Which means that saints, we sin today because we choose to sin. That has that's that has a hellish implication there. Were the desires of God foremost in our hearts and minds, we would fight tooth and nail for his glory. We would forsake anything for that glory if that was foremost in our minds. And you might go, "Well, you don't know how hard I struggle with sin." And I would look back at you and go, you don't know how far you can struggle. Because that's what God's word says. I can say that to myself. I can say that to my my mirror. Well, you don't know how. It's true. But it's not just not, not struggling to the point of the sweating of blood. Do you understand what treasure awaits for you? John Piper used the example of pornography with men because men struggle with pornography. And I go, oh, you don't know the temptation I'm dealing with. John Piper said, if there was a million dollars right here, you're struggling with temptation right now, right this minute. And I had a million dollars for you and said, pick. You put it down. Well, let's go to your life. Let's put a gun to your head. You pick. I go, okay, I'm not going to do it. So you can make a choice. It's a very obvious choice. Do you understand the treasure that awaits us for obedience? For thy will be done. Not my will, but thine be done. Do you understand? Oh, the treasure that God has in store for us, the blessings. So we look to Jesus, we fix our eyes on him. But Christ's suffering in the garden is not just a model for us. On how to overcome sin. Man his staggering love should overwhelm us. As we begin to comprehend the source for his empathy toward us. I'm going to flip over into Hebrews. We were in Hebrews this morning in our uh, adult Sunday school class. And we ended up just shy of this passage. We're going to turn to Hebrews chapter 2 verse 18. And then over to chapter 4. Because the author of Hebrews points to this very point. He says, because he himself has suffered when tempted. Okay, not on the cross. He himself has suffered when tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Who's that? You and me. In chapter 4. Verse 14 of Hebrews, he says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Let me go further. Let me say, we do not have a God who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. (laughs) We have a God who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. We have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. And therefore, brothers and sisters, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace to worship. Yes, but no, that's not what he says. He doesn't say, okay, now that we have this high priest, we can draw near to worship. He says, draw near that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Wow. Wow. He isn't bitter that he bore our sins. He delighted to bear our sins. And because of that, we can now come before our Lord and Savior to find grace and the mercy and help us, to help us in our time of need. You know, what what upheld Christ during this time? You know, think of the words he said during his ministry. Thy will be done. He taught his disciples to pray that. Now he's praying the same thing. Thy will be done. Not mine. Yours is better. For God so loved the world. Oh. Jesus told his disciples, No greater love has any man than this. Oh. He loved them. We have His Word as a sure anchor in our storm. We have His Word as a comfort in the midst of travail. We have no sure strength than the Word here to help us in our weakness. But yes, we have the written Word. We do, but we have the risen Word. saint if you feel alone come boldly before the throne of grace if you ache for compassion there is none other who will have compassion on you like christ will if you have no strength he is the source omnipotent of all strength spurgeon this this truth so struck Spurgeon he said the sympathy of Jesus Christ is the next most precious thing to his sacrifice. I mean how important is the cross that our sins are paid for absolutely but more than that he has compassion on us. Yes we see Jesus walk to the cross without a tear, without a tremble, without a quivered lip until he bore the forsakenness of his father and he cried out. So don't, don't let anybody ever tell you that Jesus had no struggle during his time on earth. He struggled in a way none of us ever has. When we are tempted... At some point, every one of us has caved. We've given in, we've capitulated. And only the one who has turned his back over and over and over and over to the tauntings and desires to follow wholly after the pleasure of the Father has known the full onslaught of temptation. He knows it to the agony of shedding his blood and he drank the cup of God's wrath to the last, drop it happened on the cross but his decision was made in the garden five temptations three in the desert one on vacation one on death row he turned aside those temptations by the word of god and for the glory of god and for our sakes let's pray father we are overwhelmed by the love how deep the father's love for us that you would give us his robes and you lord jesus would take ours that you would take our sin god thank you Thank you for opening our eyes that we might see. Thank you for giving us ears that we might hear. And I pray, God, that you would be honored and glorified in our lives as we go from this place. Father, help us to radiate your glory to the world around us. That others may come to know Christ as Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.